This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. The president has initiated Ghost Protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film franchises one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. Uh, getting a m- little bit more acclimated to the school schedule, but uh, but it's going pretty well. So far, I haven't um, contemplated just leaving yet, <laughs> but, uh, but we'll see. Uh, so t- we are still... Uh, working our way through the Mission Impossible series, and today we are on the fourth chapter with Brad Bird's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And uh, to help us with this, we are joined by our pal uh, Kiefer Wynn from the Gone But Not Forgotten Article Asylum. Welcome, Kiefer. Thank you very much for having me. I'm an avid listener of the podcast, and I'm really grateful to be here with you guys. It's uh, great to have you on. Uh, So why don't you just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I am very proud to be a friend of both members of this podcast. I am an amateur cinephile in training. I do... No, you're legit. (laughs) I wish, I wish. No, I I, uh, talk about movies on Twitter where I'm uh, at the Fitz Racket or George Gervin, Lord Byron, whichever one. it's fancy. I'm also on YouTube at Key for Win. I talk about movies occasionally, trying to do more stuff this year. So, yeah, that's me. All right. And before we uh, begin the main discussion, if you guys uh, enjoy the show, I'd like to ask you to please uh, take a minute to go and rate and review us on iTunes and then like us on Facebook so you can uh, catch all the uh, upcoming uh, upcoming episodes and our releasing episodes. And uh, I've noticed something kind of funny that's been happening as we've been doing this show. It's happened three times now that as we are doing uh, a movie series, like some big news will break about that uh it happened like when we were doing men in black uh the news came out that f gary gray was directing the one that is now a uh, men in black international and we were doing the clone wars right as we were nearing the we're out on our last episode they announced clone wars is coming back and now yeah, even before that um with um sherlock holmes robert downey jr said in an interview that they were oh, yeah, trying yeah. <laughs> to get back into development for the third one yeah and, and now finally uh Earlier this week, the news came out that Christopher McQuarrie had signed on to direct not one, but two more Mission Impossible films that would be shot back to back and released in 2021 and 2022. And I think we could probably do a whole episode just about that. <laughs> but, oh, man. Um, just, I, again, I, I, the same as when I heard that he was coming back for Fallout, I'm kind of torn. Like, I love Mr. Christopher McQuarrie. I absolutely worship him as a director. I think he's one of the best action directors working today. But also, I love how they've gotten a new director. You know, for the first five films, it was all different directors, and there was so much, so many different unique styles and voices. And I'm gonna miss that. However, I can't be sad because I know we're gonna get fantastic movies. And to his credit, I think that uh, he did a good job, kind of finding a different voice for Fallout. You know, it it didn't just feel like a complete continuation from Rogue Nation of Fallout. There's there's definitely. Uh, a unique identity between both of those films and they're not the same one. Do you have something to say, Kiefer? Oh, I did. I, I'm, I'm sorry to break up the flow, but as you guys were talking, I, I remember seeing that there were also reports that they'd be bringing back Henry Cavill and Alec Baldwin for oh, yeah. these uh, new Mission Impossible movies as well. So that's something to be excited about if you like those characters. So uh, just that was a, a funny kind of little, little thing that I've noticed going on that uh, apparently people are paying attention to when our podcast comes out to time the press releases 
And so I again I asked on Facebook again uh, what people thought of Ghost Protocol, and only one person responded. Uh, Shane said uh, best uh, best of the series, in my opinion, and that's a a lot of people share that uh, sentiment. I'm I, I'm not sure entirely what your uh, rankings are, Kiefer, but we'll get into that towards the end. And uh, right before we uh, start the main discussion, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, behind-the-scenes making of this film? Sure. So immediately following Mission Impossible 3, uh, it was the lowest-grossing film of the series. However, Paramount and Cruise were both pleased enough with the audience reception and convinced that, uh, that it warranted continuation, uh, and they wanted to go through with another sequel. However, Cruise himself is experiencing a change as a producer. Um, Cruise and producing partner Paula Wagner lost their exclusive partnership with Paramount in uh, August of th- 2006, uh, following Cruise's comments about Brooke Shields and, and antidepressants and, and that whole fiasco, as well as Who's just Brooke his, Shields. She's an actress who um, who experienced postpartum depression, and, and she just talked about her experience with that and, and the benefits of antidepressants and how that helped her. And, and there was this very... Um, very viral interview that that Cruz did where he really railed against stuff like that and and that was all happening around his very vocal conversion to Scientology and and so there's speculation that and jumping on couches just, and well yeah all of that stuff was kind of rotating around a, a similar time frame so you know a lot of people think that that had something to do with Paramount wanting to distance themselves at least get away from such a, a close uh, partnership um, there are other rumors. Uh, about why they actually split, but it's it's mostly speculation. Uh, later in November of that same year, however, MGM would partner with uh, Cruz and Wagner, offering them a percentage of United Artists. Um, this deal would fall apart two years later uh, in 2028, or sorry, 2008, as Wagner would leave United Artists as chief uh, chief executive officer. Um, there's some business insiders who remained anonymous, but quoted her involvement as being a disaster. So there was, there was a lot of drama on that end. Um, and then, uh, you know, in 2010, Cruise would uh, release Night and Day, and that was a pretty big financial failure. There wasn't really a lot of critical or audience appreciation for the movie, so Cruise ended up agreeing to take a pay cut for the next installment. Um, and then Cruise and Paramount eventually would start the development um for the new film with Paramount still releasing the film in the US. So once they got into the production, initially Abrams was offered a chance to return to the director's seat, but uh, but because of his uh, schedule being right in between Super 8 and Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, he was forced to decline. He was shooting Super 8. Oh yeah, so yeah, it was the tail end of Super 8. Um, Abrams production company Bad Robot would still however produce the film. Uh, Ruben Fleischer and Edgar Wright were both being considered. However, Cruz, Abrams, and Paramount all ended up kind of eyeing Brad Bird together. Uh, we, I guess we really did dodge a bullet that uh, Ruben Fleischer was not <laughs> chosen to direct this film. Yeah, but at the same time, I'm very curious what a Wright Mission Impossible would look like. Perfection. Probably. Uh, Cruz had already been impressed by Bird ever since he saw The, the Incredibles in 2004, um, and apparently immediately after he saw it, Cruz called Brad Bird directly and said, if you ever want to direct live action, please, please direct me. Um, of Bird, Cruz said his composition and storytelling was absolutely wonderful. Bird declined the informal offer and would pursue directing 1906, which was a film adaptation of the book of the same name, chronicling the San Francisco earthquake and fire of 1906. 
Bird would pause his work on that film to direct Ratatouille before coming back to 1906, though Bird eventually decided to step away from the project, stating, It's one of those happy coincidences of timing. I was working on 1906 right after Ratatouille when suddenly I looked up and a couple of years had gone by. I was still wrestling with story problems and didn't want the rest of my career to read. He worked on 1906. I wanted to actually make something. So I set 1906 aside and started looking around for films that were already in motion. Michael Giacchino, who not only created the score for Ghost Protocol, but also my previous two films, Ratatouille and The Incredibles, and had also worked with J.J. Abrams on Lost, Star Trek, and the last Mission Impossible film, and I were having lunch at Bad Robot when J.J. walked by and asked me what I was doing. I told him I was just looking around, <laughs> and that night he sent me a text that just said, Mission? with a question mark. It was just one of those things that happened at the right time. It was also a chance to work with J.J. and Tom, which sounded like a lot of fun. He said it sounded big and daunting in a good way, crazy, but the kind of crazy that I got into this business to embrace. Um, and Adam Goodman, the president of uh, Paramount Motion Picture Group, said uh, it didn't matter at all uh, that he had only had animated experience because every one of those films was inspired with the best form of story and action sequences and every, fr uh, every frame blew your mind. Um, so he came on pr uh, pretty quickly after that. Uh, initially, the film was tentatively titled Mission Impossible 4, in August 2010, but would later be retitled Ghost Protocol after seeing Nolan not using numbers for his Batman sequel, The Dark Knight. They decided that they wanted to go for a subtitle. Um, so that's it as far as getting the movie started. Yeah, and uh, th this would be the first time that a previous director returned as a producer. Um, apparently, he had, uh, Cruz had a very good working relationship with J.J. Uh, Abrams because he asked him to come back and uh, produce this film, and he's continued as a producer up until Fallout. Like, all the, all the films still now have the uh, the bad robot on them. So writers uh, Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec, who had worked with uh, J.J. on Alias, were brought on to write the as-of-yet-untitled fourth film. Uh, during filming, some nobody called Chris McCrory was brought on to rewrite the script as they were shooting. Uh, McCrory had uh, co-written Cruz's 2008 historical thriller, Valkyrie, which is a very underrated little film, I think. And, like... McQuarrie isn't actually credited on the film, uh, but I have some quotes about you know what just what he did to this movie. He said, uh, on Ghost Protocol, I came in the middle of the shoot uh, to do a rewrite of the screenplay that they had already started the movie. I had to communicate with the entire staff to determine what I could and couldn't change, what sets had been built or struck, what scenes I could or couldn't reshoot. I learned so much about production being right there. The script had these fantastic sequences in it, but there was a mystery in it that was very complicated. What I did was about clarity. The mystery had to be made simpler. It was like reaching a sock and pulling it inside out. It's still a sock. It still had all the same pieces, but all put together in a different order. And just and I listened to a podcast yesterday where he got into some pretty up, some up greater detail about what exactly he was doing. He said you didn't know what was in the suitcase. You didn't know what was in the envelope. You didn't know what the villain was doing. It was all it was all a mystery. And Julia was really dead. Uh, he also talked about how uh, Jeremy Renner's char uh, character, Brant, his backstory was different. Originally, like his backstory was that he had choked uh, while out on, on f in the field and two other agents got killed. And that that's why he was a he was now an analyst. McCory also brought like the, the little bit of philosophy that we have uh, uh, from the villain. Uh, what's his name? I've Hendrix. Uh, is it Hendrix or Hendrix's henchman? Uh, I think. <laughs> He's so unmemorable. I think it's Hendrix. Uh, the little bit of philosophy we have from that villain was also added by Macquarie. Also, interestingly, uh, Damon Lindelof was brought on towards the end of production uh, by the studio to try and rework some of the ideas, the original script ideas that Macquarie had changed back into the film, uh, but it didn't work, so none of that was used. Uh, I wonder if this was why uh, uh, Brad Berg then worked with uh, Lindelof on uh, Tomorrowland. 
So as far as casting the film, uh, originally Ving Rhames was supposed to return as one of the primary side characters. Um, however, budget cuts would keep him from appearing in a prominent role. He claimed in an interview, I may be doing something very small in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, but I will just say that the budget changed dramatically and I'll leave it at that. He was then asked if this meant a simple cameo, to which he replied, hmm, cha-ching could create that, but it's up to them. Um, and so that's kind of the, the big shifts in budget is why his role was reduced to just that very ending little scene. Um, the final cast would include Tom Cruise obviously reprising the role as Ethan Hunt, Simon Pegg as Benji, Jeremy Renner as William Brandt, Paula Patton as Jane Carter, Michael Nigist, Nigist? Nigist, I believe. Nigist as Kurt Hendricks, uh, Leia Sedu as Sabine Moreau, Vladimir Mashkov as Anatoly Sidorov, Samuel Edelman as Marius Wistrom, Anil, and I'm, I know I'm butchering most of these, but uh, I'm just enjoying we'll see this. how it goes. Anil Kapoor as Bridge Nath, Ivan Shadow. He's actually a, like a big superstar in India. Yeah, I looked into that. It's it's really interesting. Like these these kind of guys, whenever they go to these different locations, they get bigger names within within the locations they're at. Um, but in addition to that, they they had a Ivan Shiedov as Leonid Liskin or Lisenker, uh Josh Holloway in a small role as Trevor Hanaway. I wonder if that was the, the JJ Loss connection that got him as well. Probably. Uh, Mirage Gerbic as Bogdan, and then in uncredited roles, Tom Wilkinson as the IMF secretary, Ving Rames as Luther Stickle, and Michelle Monaghan as Julia Mead Hunt. Uh, and then just an interesting tidbit. Uh, in an interview with MTV, Renner would say upon asking if there were plans for him to become the lead and kind of take over, uh, he was quoted saying, it's a franchise to potentially take over. I can't predict the future, but that's certainly the idea. So there were, especially because of that, there was a lot of talk that uh, that this was going to kind of become his series and that Tom Cruise, um, if his role was going to continue, would be in a more supporting role. Um However, he would later back down from that statement in an interview responding to a similar question, saying, I heard that. I hear lots of rumors. No, it's not true about Mission Impossible. There's no taking over. It's not happening. When was that interview dated? Uh, I don't have a date on that second one. I think they were both um, just a few months before and then a few months after the release of the film. Okay. I wonder, because, like, you know, like he was also brought in at t- to try and replace... Uh, Matt Damon in The Born Legacy, and that didn't go go so well. Didn't that was going to be my comment. Yeah, it didn't work out here. They're like, well, we'll try it on another series, and I'm guessing after Legacy, they they had a they were okay with their uh, their decision. So filming began in October 2010 and went on till March of 2011. Location shooting was done in Mumbai, Prague, Moscow, Bangalore, and Dubai, as well as many other places. Um, but the studio filming was done in Vancouver. In a, one of cinema's most famous stunt sequences, Cruz actually climbed up on the outside of uh, you know, the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, and they, you know, the entire sequence was shot with him <laughs> dangling on, on uh, cables on the outside of the building like 1,000 feet in the air. Portions of the film, including the Burj Khalifa scene, were shot on IMAX cameras. Uh, this and The Dark Knight uh, seem to be kind of what really kicked off the IMAX craze that is still kind of going on today. Between choo- or Choosing between IMAX craze or 3D craze, I will happily take the IMAX <laughs> one. Yeah. yeah. Of the sets that were built, they actually built like half of the uh, 
of that high tech parking garage, and it was actually functioning. They had this high this hydraulic lift that could lift up cars. Like it was like a, they built an actually functioning. Uh, what, what do you call that thing? The, the super awesome uh, parking garage to shoot in, which is pretty crazy. Like they had to, they couldn't do it in the in the actual studio, so they had to uh, basically use a shipyard to find a building that was big enough. I'm not sure what it's called, but it looks um, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Michael Giacchino re- uh, returned as composer. And uh, as you said, he's the go-to guy for both J.J. Abrams and Brad Bird. So that makes sense. Um, on an interesting side note, uh, Giacchino's younger brother, Anthony, directed some of the uh, special features for this film that I just watched this morning. And finally, the film was released on December 16th of 2011. So, uh, Kiefer, this being your first time on on the show, uh, what, what was your relationship with the Mission Impossible series leading up to the release of Ghost Protocol? And uh, do, what was your experience watch, uh, watching this movie for the first time? Well, I'll say it this way. I didn't see a Mission Impossible movie in theaters until, hmm, let me think. It's It was probably Rogue Nation. And I got into watching the Mission Impossible series because I needed a action movie that I could watch with my family. Something that was interesting and fun and, you know, not too edgy because I needed my mom and sister to appreciate it as well. And I really got into the movies. Like It was a movie that I watched the first time. Uh, speaking of Mission Impossible 1, I watched the first time with my family and just kind of appreciated it as a fun action movie. And then I realized there were more and more of them. So I went and saw two, then I went and saw three when they came out on uh, – streaming services and then i finally saw ghost protocol and that was the movie that converted me into a full-time mission impossible fan i that was the first mission impossible movie that i thought to myself man i really missed out not seeing it in theaters i just found it to be incredible i saw the trailers i'd seen the incredible feats uh the stunts I'd seen all of it, but I just kind of you know pushed it to the back of my mind i was focusing more on the indie movies at that point i didn't want to give popular movies their proper due ghost protocol has a lot to do with that uh, i'm not going to spoil whether it's my favorite mission impossible movie or not but yeah that was the movie that really converted me to the mission impossible fan that i am now well nice and now what about you james so um i think this is actually and i don't remember if i've said this before on our previous episodes i think this was actually my first film to watch in the series um we had friends uh we saw friends we go over um recently watched uh, fallout with um, but before I had seen any of them, I was just over at their house and they were kind of right in the middle of their marathon. And I happened to show up whenever it was time to watch Ghost Protocol. And I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I had kind of, I was very unaware of the conversation happening around the series. And so at that time, I just thought, oh, these these are probably no different than Fast and Furious, probably not going to be to my taste. I'm, I'm not really going to try to I'm not going to assume I'm going to enjoy this. And I ended up really enjoying it. And then it would be a little bit after that that I'd go back whenever some of them were on Netflix. And then I watched the first and second and so on. But yeah, I, I really liked this the first time I watched it. And it's still one that I have a lot of fun on or a lot of fun with on rewatches. Yeah, so I actually knew nothing, absolutely nothing about this movie until I saw the trailer uh, in 2011, and I was kind of shocked that they were making another one. I I love Mission Impossible three, but I, I thought you know that's that's just the series. You know, the, the the sequel fever hadn't quite struck yet. 
And I was I was actually really dubious. I thought the trailer looked really stupid and cartoonish. Um, I'm not going to try and defend 16 year old Gabe's stupid opinions, but I didn't like the trailer. But now I that's one of my favorite trailers of all time. With the uh, the M M&M and M and Pink's won't back down over it. Ah, it's so good. But then I remember the you know, the critical elation when it came out, and I. I didn't actually, I didn't get to see it in theaters. I wasn't really watching a lot of movies then. But then when I finally did see it, I, I wasn't all that blown away. Um, I think part of that was probably due to because I, I watched it on a pirated Chinese disc on a seven inch uh, you know, portable DVD player while mm. on a mission trip in China. So that's probably not the, the format that Brad Bird would recommend seeing it in. And I uh, watched it several times over the years and I, I, I've always enjoyed it very much. Um, I, 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 I just, I don't think it's ever really grabbed me the way it seemed to have like just enraptured everybody back in 2011, but I, I, did, I, I always did enjoy it. Um, so just uh, moving into the main discussion, let's just start with you, Kiefer. Just overall, what is what is it that you love about this movie? Uh, to me, Ghost Protocol is probably like the encapsulation of everything that I like about the Mission Impossible franchise. Because at the heart of it, you know, beneath all of the stunts <laughs> and all of the exotic locales, it's just a story about people trying very hard to do something that's really difficult and somehow finding a way to make it work. (laughs) That is (laughs) absolutely correct. I was thinking that word in my mind, but I wanted to avoid it. So I took an extra pause to think of another word, but yeah, like I I love the fact that these are just four normal people. And I had down in my notes, I just rewatched it today that one of the things that makes this franchise and this movie in particular, so interesting to me is how, often the characters uh, show human emotion and in a realistic way, like they show like fear and not just, you know, the side characters, but Ethan Hawke has moments where he, he seems to be afraid. He's concerned. He's angry. uh, He's contemplative. I I really enjoy that, especially in my, you know, bigger popcorn films that I'm so fond of. Like I really, I really appreciate that. And, and movies and this one in particular, just everything blends well. The humor works well. I, I love the, in particular, my, the Burj Khalifa stunt is mm-hmm. my favorite Mission Impossible stunt that I've ever seen, probably. Uh, if it wasn't number one in, until I saw Fallout uh, and there's the parachute jump scene, that was probably my favorite as well. So there's twin favorites going on. But yeah, I love the Burj Khalifa, Khalifa scene. I love uh, the chase scenes. I love the ending scenes with the uh, massive car park. That's, mm, again, yes. that's the best mission impossible sequence i've ever seen we're gonna go over each one of those in excruciating detail yeah i, I like how you mentioned how the uh, the team felt really real and i think that's something that 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 uh they saw worked really well in a mission impossible 3 where jj really focused on trying to make it more of a team movie previously it had been it'd be kind of the, the ethan hunt show and i think they, t- they took that idea and really uh expanded that and and Almost like there's some sequences where the other characters have like it feels like they have like equal parts, especially like the Burj Khalifa scene. There are long sequences which were focused on other characters that aren't Ethan, and I think it works really well. And I yeah, think you we have to talk- give props. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't want to speak over you. No, you go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say that I think it, you have to give you know some props to Tom Cruise, who's still a massive superstar in 2010 and 2009, for allowing you know other people to really have big moments in his film like mission impossible films were his films up until then just as gabe was saying and for him to take a step back and say hey you know we're gonna allow this to be more of a team film instead of just me i think that speaks a lot to his uh character as an actor and a producer 
he knew we'd remember him that he was that he climbed on a building he's like yeah i'm cool everyone's gonna be looking at me then (laughs) and everyone did yeah i do like like the evolution of the way the team is presented here where you know it's they're, they're killed off so so quickly in the first one and i think that two tried to establish the team dynamic but it there was really nothing nothing worked as far as the team went there um, and then yeah, Abrams was like, no, there's 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 these other people, and they're they're more instrumental than we're giving them credit for. And then Brad Bird, to me, here established the probably the most pure formula that that we've seen going forward. With every mission is a multifaceted mission, and we're not just going to cut to this person talking through these mics. We're we're going to be there in the thick of it with all of these different people. Everybody has their own mission they're having to do um every p it's it's like clockwork and and we're not just told that this person has you know this cog has moved we get to see it move with them and and what they're doing and and that's really carried over into rogue nation and fallout as well and speaking of that team dynamic the the original you know know, the cold opening that we have where it shows like a minute of the josh where josh holloway gets killed like that scene originally was the opening like I, when I was watching it this time, it felt a little out of thought. I thought, I wonder if like they have, they show that cold open and then they do it in a flashback later. That entire scene was originally shot to be the opening of the film. So, the, you know, the film wasn't even going to open with Ethan Hunt till you know, 10 minutes in. Oh, wow. That would have been a good way to grab the attention. Though I do like, like watching the, the match get struck within the context of the movie and then following that into the credits. But, uh, but either way works. Yeah. So just going to like the the one thing that everyone talks about, aside from the Burj Khalifa scene, I think it's just Brad Bird's direction. There is just something magical about the way he shoots action scenes, but or not just action scenes, just the the general heists, you know, slash mission scenes. Just there's something how the way the way he shoots motion, and the way he moves the camera and just orchestrates all the characters and pieces within the frame that. I don't even it's really hard to to get a hold on just to just what makes it look so special because it's it's almost it almost feels like it's animation because just the level of control that he has with the camera in tandem with the motion of the characters is just it just makes for this beautiful this beautiful this explosion of action on screen that it's amazing it's just a masterclass of action direction and just every action scene is so wonderfully shot and edited in the you know the the visual direction um you know it's he he's a very different director than Abrams but i think like he has that that sim, very similar style of action direction where he knows he's really communicating all the information that you need to know um just a really fluid and smooth way with these beautiful shots uh yeah i, I could I could really go on but i i just i love the way he directs action in this film yeah, and like you said, that's that's the reason that so many people, myself included, love it, and and it's why you know scenes like you know climbing the skyscraper or the the car scene at the end, it's why they're so remembered, is because they're not just awesome because of what's happening on screen, like Tom Cruise climbing and like just running down the side of a building like that is inherently cool. But it's made all the more exciting just because of the way Bird moves the camera around, um, and it's it's interesting because you know when it, when he's directing non-action scenes, to me the camera often feels like really static, and, and I'm not saying that in a bad way, but it, it feels much more conventional and and kind of shooting these scenes and in, in the way one would just kind of 
shoot a, a drama or whatever but when he gets to action all of a sudden he becomes this whole other kind of director where he's like you said he's fluid and he's he's finding all these different and interesting angles to shoot it from and and he's he'll he'll go from like really up close-ups with uh, or allowing us to get up right there with the characters and then he'll pull back again just to kind of get the um, the scale back into perspective it's it's a really cool way he shoots everything and it's also the way he just layers in like little gags and hooks throughout the action scene. I was thinking about in the, the opening sequence where they're escaping from the prison, things like is like little, a cartoon logic after uh, they open the door to Bogdan's cell and Tom Cruise runs in and then he backs slowly out with a giant like f- facing him down and then he goes back in. It's like little touches like that adds so much to a scene or like when Bogdan gets punched, then he... And, uh, Ethan gets entangled in a fight, so Bogdan starts crawling underneath the fight, and he goes like twenty feet, and then Tom Cruise kind of runs up and grabs him, and they keep, and they all go off again. It's just like the the the, the flow and the, the like, just the chemistry of the scene is just so joyful to watch. I actually wrote a note about that, like a scene like in that prison escape scene where uh, Tom Cruise is talking with Simon Pegg. And he's trying to get him to open up a certain cell. <laughs> and he's looking at Simon. Simon's looking at him. And he's like, hey, move the camera. He's like, move the camera. He's like, no, do it here. No, don't do it. Do it. Do it. And he finally like raises his fist and like threatens threatens him. And he's like, okay, finally. And that whole scene, it could have taken away from the kinetic action and like the like the rising drama, but it doesn't. It it, it somehow maintains like all of the action uh, and drama that we've had up until that point. Yeah, I, I love the way he like touches his heart. I'm forever grateful to you. <laughs> you know, that's just that's just great directing. Like, and you, you guys yeah. are so right about Brad Bird. He he really did like create like a masterclass in action sequence directing for all of us out there who love film. So I'm grateful mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from his background in animation, where when you have animation, you can just do so much and just uh, not even really care about physics or anything. But you, and you know, you're also with a lot of animation. You're trying to get jokes in and move them with the action, um, and that comes supernatural to those animated films. And sometimes they stick out in a in a really off-putting way here. But I guess a guy coming from that background who's just been trained in how to insert that in a in a scene where it feels natural. It's interesting watching three uh, Mission Impossible 3 and then this back-to-back. The vibe that I've been getting from both of them, and I'll be interested to see if if McQuarrie continues it at all uh, in Rogue Nation and Fallout whenever I'm watching those again. But they both feel very Spielberg in the way they do action, where Spielberg's often finding ways to pause action um, for a bit, not even not pause action, I guess, because a lot of the time the the action continues in, in really smooth ways, um, especially in a movie like Minority Report. But but both both of these recent Mission Impossible movies that we've talked about feel as if they're they're always jumping at the opportunity to get jokes in. Whether it's you know in three with Ethan landing through the window and seeing the one like seeing the guy uh, as he's laying on the table, and then the wind pulls him back out. Or in this, like you said, with everything happening with with Bogdan, or or the trouble he has with the glove and stuff, it's just there's always something happening beyond what needs to happen. But it's never a bad thing. It's just it's it's like constant personality layered into just what's pretty like a pretty amazing technical exercise. Uh, but not to get a little negative, I, I do I did also really see what you were talking about. How I, like you can kind of there are moments you can feel 
where uh, this is this is a first time uh, live action film. Actually, go go back to a positive. Where you t- you talked about how with the, he was able to use his experience in animation to really plan out everything, and like I like I was watching the special features. He used a lot of previous where he ba- basically shot the entire like all the action sequences in, in animation form and then went out and shot them live action. I feel like that could be kind of that kind of be a crutch for live action directors when they're not but they're not very good where they'll create the entire scene in CGI and then use a lot of sloppy CGI shots and like CGI body doubles to make, to get these super outlandish, like, 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 like these crazy camera moves and just things that just they they would might, might, might've been cool in one way, but they're also, they just feel weightless. What he does is here is he, you know, he pre-visits everything. So he knows the, the sequence works and every shot has a purpose, but then he actually shoots it in live action. So you don't have that problem. Like he, he makes sure every shot he makes is something he can actually get in camera. Um, but going back to the the critical part, I do feel that his compositions, they're not that interesting. Like what makes his, his, his shots interesting is, is the motion. So whenever motion isn't happening, I've, I do find this film to be very flat and boring visually. Like there's not a lot, not a lot of color. It's just this kind of, kind of cold blue over it. And just like the 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 the, the, the kind of the shot reverse shots of conversations, they're they're kind of bland in the way they look, and uh, just a lot of just kind of flat uh, flat visuals that um, you know, again when the action happens, that that kind of all goes away, and it's like it becomes a different director. But I I do feel that you could tell that he wasn't entirely used to the the um, you know, live action t- uh, storytelling at that point. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the way that I want to phrase my response because i do think i understand what you're saying gabe but when i think back on the movie i i do think of it as very colorful colorful i i i think he he shoots with an eye towards kind of like recreating you know like like how something would look to our natural eyes it it isn't like heightened Mm -hmm. for for beauty or something so when i when i look at ghost protocol I see what would it look like for just one guy to be up against the, the tallest building in the world. And I think that natural sense of scale and of color really works well for what he's trying to do. So when he goes on to something more colorful like a uh, like the uh, the ball scene and everyone's in different colors, it really pops there too because he hasn't created a world where every other color is heightened to an extremity to catch our eyes throughout the entire movie. It's, it's shot the way I think we would see something through our natural eyes. So something would pop naturally to us like a brightly colored dress, uh, or the blue sky on the Burj Khalifa. Yeah. Like those things pop out to us because those, those are naturally appealing to us. And like the, the blueness that you're talking about, I think it's more pronounced at night. And I think that's probably more of a stylistic choice. That does make sense. Actually, just thinking about, I, I guess I was you know, looking at, you know, Mission Impossible 1, 2, 3, and Fallout. They're all very highly stylized visually. So I guess you're know, going for a much more naturalistic color correction and not as and not being as intentional in the compositions. It, it just it does stand out differently. Yeah, and I think um I th- I think I see what you're saying, like in terms of the, the A shot, B shot. I think some of the conversations, although these are scenes that I don't even think have to be um particularly visually stunning at all um some of those scenes are very you know we kind of get there we accomplish what we need to accomplish i guess for me it's it's kind of it's it's the difference between really good and god level which is where i would put like jj abrams and christopher quarry like where everything is like 
incredible. Like this is just really good. So is that not even necessarily a criticism, just more of an observation? I will say I think even the stuff outside of the action during the the Kremlin stuff is is pretty great. Like just following them through the halls. There are a couple of shots that always kind of stick out for me there. And the shot of the explosion in the background with him running away is pretty phenomenal in my opinion. Yeah. I just talk about the Kremlin. Um I just love the, you know, it's Benji's kind of first time on the field. He's like, you know, I just talk, I just talk when I'm nervous. He's like, shut up. <laughs> when, they're, when they're talking to the guards, like, you know, check it again, private. And then Pe- and, uh, Peg goes, Igorov. <laughs> I just love the little <laughs> sneer he has. Um, but then like, this is another just masterclass of visual direction is when they set up this, 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 this sheet that essentially mimics the hallway behind them. And it's this really complicated machine where, like, it's, like, projecting the image of the hallway, but it has this camera on an arm that has to match the guard's eye level as he walks around. And it's a lot of all these moving parts, and yet they never have to explain to us what it does. We instantly understand everything, like, what every piece of this this crazy device does, all through just, you know, the visual storytelling. And I just I love the gag where Peg, uh, uh, Benji stands up, his face, his, his face falls out the hallway, then the hand just comes out of nowhere and pushes his face out of the way. Just again, a great little cartoon gag in there. Yeah, I lo- I love that scene. Like I I actually rewound that uh, the scene where the illusion starts to break down and the mm-hmm. the sheet is kind of flapping in the hallway. That 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 visually just it just stuck out to me. And it's a small thing. It you know it isn't the biggest thing in the in the movie, but just those little bits of genius really drew me into Ghost Protocol from the very beginning. The first time I saw it off uh, my Hulu subscri- subscription. Yeah, I'm yeah, definitely I, with you there. I love that. And the thing, I'm actually torn on what my favorite sequence in the film is between um, the Burj Khalifa scene and and this scene because this one's, you know, it's not action-packed. It's it's the exact opposite of action. But I remember the first time I watched it, I'm, it was probably, I'm guessing 2014, right? around the time I was trying to be more intentional and in, in looking at, at film and things like that, or maybe even before that. But but what I noticed um, that really stuck out to me watching it this first time was the thing that you first pointed out, Gabe, was the machine itself is, is a, you know, we're assuming a complicated device. And, and there's so many, and you know, with, with what Benji's using to, to project the sound, there's a lot of stuff going on and we're not told about any of it. They just start using it, and he he shoots the uh, the scene in such a way where the the camera or just the action itself on screen calls attention to to this part of the device and what it's doing. Just the way the like the robotic arm moves to to follow the eyes, and and watching Benji's face like appear in the camera and getting it down, and then they're having to like synchronize the background. So you know you're essentially taking a freeze frame and and controlled that. And there's no dialogue saying, all right, now we have to do this. And, okay, well, first got to make sure it lines up with this. We're never explained. We just watch it happen. And not once is there a moment of, of confusion as to what's happening. You know, when he's throwing the sound, we know what that's doing. Whenever they're moving and, like, we know why they they can't move while he's looking. We know we know why the the screen is showing the hallway from all these different angles once, like, a whole group of people get in there. And again, there's just there's no dialogue given to that device at all. And I just from from that moment on, I was like, okay, this isn't going to be a stupid movie at all. This is, this is really cool. And I think whenever I was watching it, the entire room was just kind of 
in complete silence because of the atmosphere mm. that scene has. Yeah. I want to talk about all of these scenes. I'm just going to kind of go in order through the film with the, the scenes that stuck out to me. Another really fun little sequence is the the hospital escape scene where after, after the, the Kremlin blows up and he wakes up in the hospital and he's being interrogated by a Russian James Purfoy. Uh, like this little th- cool thing where they, they brought back the, um, <laughs> they brought back the lip reading from Mission Impossible 3, which is fun. And then a little touch that I, I just, that really tickles me is when, uh, Ethan steals the paperclip off of the nurse's paperwork, and then like ten seconds later, in a diff, in a shot that is a, a shot on the the two Russian police officers in the background, she picks the paperwork and it flies everywhere. Just like little touches like that, like you could have just stolen the paperwork and be done with it. But instead, we kind of get that cause and effect that happens, um, and then just after after he escapes and like the music gets really intense and the guy pokes his head out the window and and everything's crazy. Then the camera just pans over. <laughs> Ethan's like pinned to the wall, looking terrified, you know, not a good idea. Oh yeah. To seem like one at the time. Again, a lot of personality, the scenes I just didn't need. It, it would have been cool if he just snuck out the window and jumped and you know, zip line down off with his belt. But instead we get these little funny moments. And that bird plays with our expectations there too. He, he gives us that shot of the trash in the in the bin and, and we kind of have that thought in the beginning oh you know he's just gonna somersault into the trash bags and be done with it but he drags it out a little bit longer and then you see oh no actually it's a van he's gonna zip line down to it and jump on top of the van and be okay i like that little bit of subversion there it's uh i love that police officer he's, he's got kind of a nothing role but he's, he's like you know just looking at him he takes a cigarette out and it's just i don't know one of the things that i've talked about that i love um just through this podcast is is continuity in series and i love that uh, what you were just saying Kiefer, where we look at the dumpster as if this is going to be an option you know ethan's looking at it as if it could be an option and in any other dumb action movie even some great action movies they take that option and it's cool and we get the the chasing continues but one of the things that i think they've aside from two that they've done with mission impossible is they've kind of you know he's Maybe not quite the level of John McClane of like just the everyman kind of action hero, but they definitely lean more towards that side than than the the perfect superhero action spy who just leaps off buildings and into to trash cans and walks away fine. Um, here, you know, he's kind of in that mindset and he he doesn't do it and he's he's scared to the point of kind of like willingly go back to the to his adversary, and so kind of creating these sequences where people who have watched enough action action movies like you said we're kind of trained to we see this we know where it's going he'll he'll set that up and then he'll just kind of bring it back down to reality a little bit um and do so often through the use of humor and i, I would say almost all the time that humor and and like pulling it back in a little bit always works here so i guess we're, we're at the Burj Khalifa now i do you have anything you want to say about this uh, this particular scene, Kiefer? Yeah, there, oh, there's a lot I could say, but I, I'm going to start off by saying I have seen Ghost Protocol probably a dozen times or more, and I still get this queasy feeling in my stomach watching it because you know I I don't I don't like heights on any mm-hmm. level. Uh, planes are hor- horrible experiences for me. And watching a man, you know, even though I know in the back of my mind there's cables there and there's, you know, probably a lot less danger than, you know, I would think, I still just, oh, just it, it gets me watching him climb up uh, painfully. And the part that probably gets me the most is when after he's cut the circle 
and he's lost one glove's <laughs> adhesion, he has to kick <laughs> through the circle in order to get in, and he has to exert all this effort and, you know, nearly falls. And I think to myself, man, there's there's no way I could do that. I Like, I, I get... I get uh, upset on a zip line. Like I, I <laughs> why, why don't I? So like that, that whole that, that whole scene is just nuts to me. Like I I love the way like they gradually like set up. You know the okay this red means dead, blue <laughs> means uh, glue, and then they pay it off with one glove, and then they have it sticking up, and then it flies off. It's it's just a wonderful way to build tension uh, throughout like this amazing and incredible stunt. Yeah. And speaking of that glove, there was something that Brad Bird was saying in the interview. He wanted this to be he wanted this to be the Mission Impossible where everything goes wrong, and that's kind of like a running gag throughout this this movie that every, all the equipment goes bad. And it's I I feel like it might get a little old towards the end. Like like okay, come on, like does nothing <laughs> in this super high tech spy thing work? And it's funny because we were actually talking about this, James, with Mission Impossible Three, how. We love that when we were having action scenes, that there were constant upsets and constant, you know, setbacks and things going wrong, but they just kind of happen. They're acknowledged, and you move on. It were, and we talk about how you didn't like when films constantly had things go wrong and like really focus on it. Did did that bother you here? Not at all, because I think it it happened a lot more organically. And there's for me, whenever I talk about just this constant push for escalation in in scenes when there, there's specific moments um, that bother me. It's it's not this, just the whole idea of, of a scene kind of being defined by a series of setbacks. It's, it's whenever somebody, Oh, well, there's, there's one moment here. Um, and, and it's, it seems most of the time when this happens, it's almost this exact same thing where somebody almost falls out. So someone else has to catch them and then they almost fall out. So someone catches them. It's, the, the scene's already kind of been defined by this consistent escalation and, and near-death experience that I think that, that starts to to cross over to the boundaries of, you know, just a, a bit of overkill. Um, but for the the majority of the scene, I, I really am not bothered by by the way things stop working. I, I saw the same interviewers, you know, we kind of get the idea that, that things aren't working super well even with the him getting the mission where it doesn't explode and he has to go back and kick <laughs> the booth before it, it kind of blows up on the inside. And and yeah, you see that throughout. And like I said, I, I enjoy, I think it works in favor here. And whenever I was talking about like how much I love the team dynamic established here, I think if there were any one scene in this movie that perfectly captures the team dynamic of the entire series, it'd be this scene where... You know, we have everybody off doing what they have to doing what they have to do, and and you know Benji is quite convinced that his side is like the difficult part. Uh, when he comes back in, he's like, "Well, it was difficult, but I got it done." Like bits like that are great, but I think for some reason this scene, the way technology is used here, it just it gets me in such a big way because it's not like all of these. All of these things go wrong within the span of like five seconds, just sequentially, one after the other, like boom, uh oh, boom. Uh, like we we get to live with this new wrinkle and we try, and then this goes wrong, and then we're having to adapt instead of just this really cheap, like within the set, like a 10 second span of like, let's really get them one last time. Uh, so yeah, the glove not working, um, 
having to kick the window like three times before he comes in or before he bursts in all of that really really got me okay um so I think well, before we go on to praise anybody more, I want I, I want to bring in my major criticism of this film. The thing I think the thing I think that keeps me from ever really embracing it on the level that everyone else has, and that's I, I feel like this film does it it doesn't actually have any heart. Like it, it, it like it, it has two subplots that are really good subplots. Where with you have uh, Agent Carter played by uh, Paula Patton. You know she lost um, this. Uh, the uh, this agent that she was in love with, and you know, she she wants she wants revenge on uh, Moreau, played by Lisa Doe. And then there's also um, Brant, you know, the the drama of you know being an analyst who's forced into the field, and then slowly realizing that he was actually he was actually someone who who feels responsible for the death of Ethan's wife Julia. And like both of those are really good subplots, and, and I think they would work perfectly if there was an actual main dramatic plot over it. But this movie feels like in this movie they forgot to actually put in any kind of dramatic arc, like over the course of the film so you have these two really strong side plots but they're still just subplots and and the way the way it's structured you have Paula Patton's arc is introduced in the beginning and resolved at the Burj Khalifa when she kicks Moreau out the window and then her arc pretty much ends and then it's at that moment it's also in the Burj Khalifa scene where Jeremy Renner's or Brandt's arc is introduced where we realize he was he's not actually an analyst and then that kind of goes to the end so you have these two tiny little subplots which are which are good but there's there's no actual dramatic arc uh the, you know to tie it over like we don't like the villain we don't care at all about the villain there's no con- there's no real personal conflict between Ethan and the villain there's no real personal conflict for Ethan period so it just it it just feels like we're you know we're going from a good a good great great action scenes to a great action scenes, but there's no real there's nothing carrying us over. So we, and I also I also think the plot is very thin. That's probably a function of Macquarie having to come in and make it a lot less a lot less overly complicated. Say like the first or second film, and so which what we get is just a film that is a lot of good sequences, but I I feel like there's very little connection. Like there's a, there's like absolutely no no emotional connection, but also very little meaningful narrative thrust. Like for example. We don't actually begin the plot to like forty minutes in, like we have the prison escape and the Kremlin uh, infiltration. But neither of those are. But we 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 don't even know exactly what we're doing for either the the, the actual plot, like of Cobalt and the and then you know he wants to fire off the nukes. None of that comes in until we meet the secretary in the in the limo, and that's that's forty minutes into the movie. So I feel like it's kind of just a mix of, you know, a very lame villain you know michael nyquist is a very good actor but he's given so little to do you know a very threadbare plot and really no core emotional uh connecting point for the for the film that as much as i love individual scenes whenever we're not in action scenes it's just there's so, there's there's no there's no narrative or emotion for me to connect to in the just the, the talking scenes unfortunately and th- this is something that i think you know, three and four, five and six have like excelled at, and this that kind of, and I I just feel like that that's that's why this will never rise to the level of that that everybody else seems to hold it as. Hmm, that's that's a that's, that's a lot to <laughs> a lot to answer. But, <laughs> but I actually I, I I I must disagree with you on that. Actually, the more I think about it, I, I was kind of nodding my head a little bit as you were talking, but I, I think I, I do disagree with your final judgment. I, I think on the, like the intensely theoretical and philosophical level, I think what 
Dose Protocol represents is the Mission Impossible franchise, like making like a like a making a common cause with the audience to really figure out what it is. You see, there's little moments of uh, winking at the audience, inviting them to come into the story and to interact with it. You know, on a number of different levels. And you see things in Ghost Protocol you never see before, and that leads me to my second, less like esoteric point, that the real heart of the story is the team. And so it's a little disconcerting, I think, and this gives rise to your complaint, Gabe. The plot isn't obvious. Like, the main heartwarming plot isn't obvious. But Tom Cruise does give us a key to what it is when at the end, Ethan Hawke tells the team, look, Nothing worked here but this team. This team worked. And so the idea that is spread throughout the entirety of the movie is that the IMF and on the larger level, the Mission Impossible franchise after, you know, the commercial letdown of three is kind of in the balance here. So what are we going to do with it? And in the movie, the IMF proves itself through the capabilities of Ethan Hunt and Paula Patton's character and Jeremy Renner's character, it proves itself to be useful and a force for good in the world through all of the challenges and travails that they have to go through. And I think on that level it works. I think on a action movie franchise, uh, not reignition, but more of a, you know, kicking up a notch or two, I think it works on that level as well. It's kind of a, hey, you know, as an audience who expect certain things from an action movie, we can give you these things, but we can also give you a little bit more to uh, feast on, not just stunts, but, you know, some really interesting uh, sequences that require more talent and more vision than your everyday run-of-the-mill sequences that you've been seeing for the last 25 years. So so I kind of disagree with the idea that there isn't a real beating heart. I think the beating heart is... That esoteric level of, hey, this is a franchise that's coming to grips with the fact that it needs to move forward and evolve in order to be effective and successful. And then B, the idea of the IMF in general, is it important? Is it valuable? Is it necessary? Is it needed? The film does its best to answer that question. It doesn't doesn't do it perfectly, but I, I do think that question and answer is there. Okay. And I don't want to I don't I don't want to rant about it, but that, that's just kind of what I was thinking as you were talking, Gabe. But you say that. But isn't that also exactly what MI3 and Rogue Nation and Fallout do? But also, they they also bring heart and emotion with the team dynamic. The, I, I think that those components are there, but I don't think any of them interact with it as fully as Ghost Protocol does. That's the reason why, you know, spoiler alert, Ghost Protocol is my favorite. Because I think it really puts the entirety of the idea of IMF under the microscope in a way that no other movie does, even though other movies have moments where, Hey, you know, Ethan Hunt is, is suspected, uh, or the IMF has failed. It's more than that. It's, it's the idea of, you know, can these individuals under the, the rubric of IMF come together to save the world. And as cheesy as that sounds like that's meaningful to me. Okay. I, I I can see that that definitely is present. I guess I would just disagree. I I don't. I think I would file that under interesting subplots, still missing main plot. I guess. But I I, I get what you're saying. I I I just don't agree that that's actually enough to fill in an emotional core for an entire two hour film. 
I think I'm going to land kind of somewhere in the middle, maybe a little bit more towards gay, but I I do see where you're coming from. And it's it's interesting that you you see that. I didn't really see that until I started looking into some of the behind the scenes. And, and one of the things they wanted dramatically from this film um, in, in writing it was the idea of of Ethan being forced to really act as a leader in in a fully formed established team dynamic because you know we we didn't really get to see that really established in in one or two at all and and three never really had a chance to fully do that just because of how emotionally compromised he was in in so much of that film uh, I think this is the first time where you really get that opportunity to hey or to say hey it's it's just us and i'm gonna have to try to find a way to bring us together to get this mission accomplished and you you have you have moments to me especially after you know after hearing you say that Kiefer, and then and before rewatching it looking into some of this stuff beforehand and and seeing some of what they were wanting to accomplish with it i definitely see those ideas in place where um Paula Patton's character kind of is is suspicious of him at first uh, when they're breaking him out, and you you got Brant calling into question his, his ideas and things, and and you're putting Ethan in a position where he's he's having to bring this this group together, and you have a scene where he's wanting to go and do it alone after a specific point, but he's forced to go back and and go back to his team and and bring them back on board. I do wish though that. That it felt more more personal. I think a lot of the bringing the team together and and relying on each other to get it done felt more functional than it did emotional. Um, at least just for me, it it I would have liked to have some scene or to have I would like to have seen some scenes of Ethan really struggling to try to bring things together. Um, and see how that affects him emotionally. Like this guy who just gut reaction. I know what I got to do. I'm just gonna go and do this. But I I need my team and and really watch him struggle to to come to that mindset by the end of it. Um, and he obviously appreciates the necessity of it by the end because you do get what feels like the movie kind of you know stating conversationally what the whole point of this was is that the this team came together, but. You know, I, I I don't think that that really translated into emotional drama. I guess I I, w- I wish that that um, felt more present in terms of Ethan's own arc of of really trying to pull this together, as opposed to like, well, we we got out like you know, let's let's really band together. This is your part. This is your part. I I'd like to see how how that affects his personality and how he really has to work with people. Um, in terms of of who they are and trying to bring the group together, but I definitely see, even if it's only like, even if it's not as much as I'd like to see, I see it present there though. Yeah, there are two good. I uh, there are only two sadly, but there are two really solid dramatic scenes. I think um, there's the the one a- after the Burj Khalifa scene where everything's failed, and you you could see kind of the failure happening as results of the character's personal problems, where you have kind of. Uh, Hunt's ego, the fact that he actually handed over live nuclear codes to a man who wants to use them. Like, 
that's an incredibly arrogant choice. And they and and it was a gamble, and they lost. And you know, you have Cruz's arrogant, you know, Hunt's arrogance, but also kind of the you know had had where uh, uh, Jane Jane Carter's character, her emotional conflict with Moreau who killed her lover. Uh, I'm assuming it's her lover. Kind of that that's boiling over where you know she puts uh, the very unqualified Benji in charge and she knocks him out and that, that, all that results that bad decision results in Moreau dying and they lost their lead. And so it, you know after that after the Burj Khalifa scene, you have that scene where they're like in the basement and everyone's just yelling at each other and Branch just like you kicked her out of a window and he's yelling at Ethan for this and yelling at Benji for being Benji and it's like everyone like all their uh, all he, their, he uh, said he she threw her that that was the funny yeah. part you throw her out of a building <laughs> and uh but yeah, th- it, then it's just like all of these the the personal problems that have been kind of hinted at they kind of come to a head and I, I do like I was like oh my gosh like if only we could have had this in the action scenes and then at then in the other and then the other emotional scene is towards the end when after Ethan explains to uh Brand that he actually his wife is actually still alive. And which is a very nice scene, um, but and then we have that really wonderful moment where Julia gets off the ferry and they just kind of look at each other and smile and nod. this beautiful track from Giacchino playing underneath. I was like, oh yeah, Brad Bird is a world class dramatic filmmaker. I was like, hey, well, if only we could have had this in the rest of the film. But th- that said, it's it's a very lovely scene, you know, especially to end on. So like, it's that there are co- there are dramatic moments. It's just, just like they're very contained. They don't actually become the rest of the film at least for me it seems like for you uh they do um give her yeah and, I, and if i can go back into the the first dramatic scene you were talking about i actually made a note of this rewatching it like when you hear everyone in the team start to go at each other you, you kind of get it all from uh, what i believe is uh hunt's perspective you know it's kind of you you hear it so the audience gets it but then you switch to hunt's perspective and you kind of kind of hear it all muted and he kind of comes out of, I think, the bathroom, and he he actually kind of loses it a little bit on uh, Brant. And he's like, well, everyone else is going back. He's like, well, what, what, what are you doing here? Some analyst. That goes into the, the really fun, like, uh, testing out Brant's skill scene. But I think that that little moment, I think it gives us an insight into what Ethan ha- ha- Hunt's personality really is. I almost said Ethan Hawk there. I don't know why. <laughs> but <laughs> I nearly, uh, you know, I, I think you get a, a little glimpse into how, like, tightly controlled of a person Ethan Hunt is and how that eventually got to him uh, that he had to, like, let it out on somebody. And he and the suspicion was brewing from the very beginning. Uh, and that, again, it's a little subplot of uh, suspicion that kind of pops up. Uh, throughout the movie, and again, like the, the, those parts that I'm talking about, they aren't necessarily like billboarded, but I I don't know that they, they really resonate with me. Like I, I'm looking for those small specific things, and when I see Hunt come out of the bathroom and he's upset and he's angry and he loses it on Brant a little bit, and I don't know, like that that strikes me as as really emotional, and I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And since we're at Brant, I think like this and Hawkeye are like the perfect role for Jeremy Renner in a, like a, a blockbuster film. Like we know, we know he's a fantastic dramatic actor. Like go watch Wind River, everybody. But like they, they tried to make him in the lead to like the Bourne Legacy, and it just didn't quite work. But I think like he's a he's a perfect supporting actor for for an ensemble cast, where he's like this capable but ever so slightly whiny guy who who's there just kind of to question everyone and kind of cut him down a bit he, and, and he, uh, Jeremy Renner has like the greatest deadpan where he'll just like you know not enough time not enough time or just little things or well, I, I I'm just just the helper you know he he's perfectly capable but he's he's also 
he really just does not want to be there. And he also, unlike everyone else in the team, doesn't believe that Ethan is a god who can save everyone and, you know, fix the world. He actually is a real, real normal person. He's like, no, you're crazy. Why would we do that? Um, and I think he's you know, he, like that makes him, he's just a great presence that I like that they, you know, they've brought back off and on uh, in the, or yeah, off on one, off another uh, in the uh, subsequent films. Yeah, he plays a like sardonic character really, really well. Um, where, like you said, he's he's the guy who's going to hold everything under a microscope and and call into question. Yeah, and I I think what he what he brings that you don't really get from a lot of these is, and it's 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 funny that you bring up the Hawkeye character because I think he he serves like pretty much the same role in in those films as well. Where you know four movies in here and you know however many movies. At, you know we're at with whatever particular movie we're talking about with the MCU like we're several movies into this reality you know at this point this world is fully sunken in and we're used to it and we're kind of familiar with okay this person's got to do this this person's got to do this and and we've got the the world's best and um, the world's best hacker you know the the world's most critical thing like everybody is more than capable and we as the audience almost become numb to just how ridiculous what's happening is and so it's nice when you have these characters played by jeremy renner who who come in and almost start reminding the audience and you know subsequently like the characters in in the film of how crazy all this sounds because you could have another character who's like okay uh like one two three jumping now but you've got this guy who and again it's it's also working in tandem with what brad's just doing with the film already which is bringing it back to reality a little bit where these guys are kind of used to all this craziness but but um brant isn't yet so as we're, we're constantly moving along we've got that who's essentially functioning as a voice of reason saying like this might not be able to work what if you're not able to do this what if this backfires i don't know if i can make this like all of these things happening and you know it, he's like you said he's slightly whiny but only i guess like by the strictest definition of, of whiny because it, he never comes across as annoyingly whiny um his his um delivery is always pitch perfect whether whether he's you know yelling about her having thrown her out a window or or just those deadpan like casual dismissals of, of what someone said it's it all ends up coming through perfectly in in the film and that said against Benji, who is the true believer in what the IMF is, and it's like, oh, it'll be easy. I think there's a, there's a case we made that, you know, all of them kind of represent, like, like archetypes in, like, the IMF, um, what I think is really interesting. Uh, whether, you, like you just said, whether it's the true believer, uh, whether it's the cynic, whether it's the, the face, whether it's the vengeance, um, whether it's the questioner, the doubter, like all of those are really interesting archetypes, which kind of goes to my pet theory that maybe goes pro- protocols a little bit more meta than we originally thought it was when it came out or even how we think about it now. But yeah, that's my little, little plug for my pet theory. <laughs> um, speaking of Benji, how, how awesome is it that Benji got, got to be a field agent? I, I, I love that character from, um, from Mission Impossible Three, but yeah, I I love to just you know now he's we get to have just Simon Pegg's wonderful wit and charm out in the field, and it it's just it's just a beautiful dynamic that he brings, and I'm glad they brought him back for every subsequent film. 
like they, they, do, they don't do so much here, but especially going forward, I think they give him some incredible heart. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm forever grateful that this film actually did, you know, get him out of his desk. Yeah, I, I think this film, I, I think he has a good deal of heart in this film, and I think a lot of that is just a combination of, of where the film puts him at, and. I, I don't know if Simon Pegg can give a performance without it just exuding like this this charm and heart and sincerity, um, but I I one of one of the things that I just love about and I I said this on the last episode about this series is is just where it starts characters and then where it brings them and I love that this was the next step for him where he's he's the guy in the ear in, in three and we finally get to see or as as he'd be called. Um, in, in Spider-Man Homecoming, like the dude, the guy in the chair, you know, every hero has to have his guy in the chair and that's who he is in three. And now we get to see the guy in the chair out actually out in the field. And, and he's a true believer because he, he watched the events of the last film. He knows how this goes and he's, he believes in what it, what it stands for and what it's doing. And he just gives off such a believable sense of sincerity. Um, throughout like whenever he's he's telling like oh yeah I, I i passed my my field exam and he's just he's there because he's one of the agents now you know he's he's got his part to serve he's just as out in the field as anyone else and he's maybe more than anyone else completely sold on on what they're doing you know we've had a lot of action films where where we've got like the comedic tech guy but really they're just there to to be funny um but they're not really invested in, in what's happening. But I just, even without just extensive dialogue from Benji, we get a sense of how invested he is in this group and in this mission and in the IMF itself. And and uh, I love where Rogue Nation and Fallout take him, but I thought this is the perfect next step after three. Agreed. I think Nicholas Angel really, you know, has made a step up in the world from you know, the <laughs> ranks of, the British police force. Morning. <laughs> it's a bit stiff. I do want to talk a bit more about some of the action scenes. Um, going, uh, um, you, you mentioned the, your favorite scene, the, probably the parking garage thing. I think that's also my favorite scene from this film. You know, everyone talks about the British police and like, oh, it just goes downhill after that. I don't know what movie these people watched because the parking elevators action sequence might be the greatest bit of action direction I have seen ever, period. Um, because there are all the all these moving parts you know, the, the you know the hydraulic lift is keeps going up and down and you know bring, lifting cars and cars are moving and the the case is sliding everywhere and you know, the two guys fighting for it and just the 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 steps the scene goes through where you know where you know they, they're jumping jumping around and then you know one's reaching for the case and they kick it and they fight a bit and he put you know they, it's just it's it just go it goes on and on and on and it just keeps escalating yeah in a, not not in a ridiculous way but just in a really exciting way and and just the cohere the visual coherence where you know despite it being such a complex sequence you know exactly where everyone is what they're doing you know what they want it's it's perfect you know zemeckis and spielberg level of action direction that just it makes me absolutely giddy watching it um like everyone if you want to be a filmmaker watch this scene to to teach you how to how to do action and i I don't understand how someone could be watch watch that and be disappointed (laughs) I, I agree with that. I, I think that one of the things that heightens it actually is the the, the quick cutting from that scene to the uh, scenes of the team uh, in, in the other location trying to finish their mission as well. 
but because you get to see like not just the team working together to accomplish a mission, et cetera, et cetera, but you also get to see like the effects of individual actions on the overall sequence. And that's mm-hmm. something I think a lot of action directors really don't do well. Uh, there's, I mean, it's a cliche now that there's too many cuts in action scenes, so you can't really process what's happening from point A to point B to point C. But Bird does a great job really telling us, hey, this this happened so now this will happen and now there's a chain reaction of events from here to here well now the lift is coming up so with tom cruise hanging on the edge of it so we can kick the guy in the face and take the and try to take the case or the villain will take the case and he'll run around a corner you get to see like progression in the action sequence and that's something that i really miss in action movies and that's the first thing that stood out to me about the entire sequence you get to see progressions one two and three a b and c and that allows you as a viewer to appreciate like the drama and gravity of what's happening instead of just being constantly bombarded by what are basically still images with the way they're cut these days. So I don't want to rant about that anymore, but I really appreciate <laughs> being able to see progress in my action scenes. And it's not just, you know, a quick cuts versus long takes because, you know, you can have very quick cut action scenes that are still like very coherent and do a perfect job leading the audience. I, I think like that 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 scene in the parking garage is cut fairly quickly, but each each shot is really just giving you the information you need to understand where you are at that moment. Exactly. One of the things that I really appreciate about it is, um, aside from the ending with where he he drops off, I'm I'm no expert in in all of that. I don't know if somebody could actually survive it. Um, but with that that being aside, one of the things that I like about it is it feels grounded insofar as like these action movies usually go where in in another movie we'd we'd see ethan run and just you know grab on and then just completely fall and we'd we'd see him fall or, or something like that but this movie allows for the next thing to happen to happen in a realistic way where he misses it and we see him kind of slip off but we don't actually show him fall so that when he rises up stuck underneath and kicks him we're like oh technically he could have done that and so the it's always kind of cluing you in as to what the next step is it's it's not always just saying this is the previous thing that happened and then cut this is the thing that's now happening even when they're underneath the car and we've got the brief the briefcase under there we see uh the villain kind of like move his eyes and look over this other corner he he's aware of what ethan's doing and where he's grabbing at so it kind of signals to the audience this is his plan now. He's going to come from a different angle and try to move it. And so it just doesn't come out of out of nowhere and out of frame into frame and, and happen. We're, we're watching the ebb and flow naturally, and it's kind of letting us in on where it's going even before it goes there. Um, and to be able to do that in this kind of like this tall cylindrical building with these hydraulics moving up and down, the fact that it can help us and guide us along the action in such a convoluted set piece to me is just super impressive. Yeah, that, that you're you're exactly right, both of you, and and thank you, Gabe, for cleaning up my comment. Yeah, I, I didn't want to just say that there was a bunch of long takes, but but I think that the way the scene was cut allowed us to see progression from one point to another, and that, that's the point I was trying to get across. But yeah, th- yeah, thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. And actually, I do want to go briefly back to the Burj Khalifa is also the, the scene. Everyone talks about the climb, but I actually I think I might prefer the scene afterwards as well, where, where they actually have to do this. Essentially, they have to have a business transaction happen and where they function as the middleman without either party knowing that they're there. 
like, like imagine what what like a Brian De Palma could have done with this. But but still, you know, Brad Bird does a fantastic job. But I, I just love the way that sequence is built, where he just ramps up the tension, where like both sides seem suspicious, and they you know they. And they have to get the diamonds from one person down to the other room, but they, they, they won't give them that until they provide what the other person has. And it's just, and the sequence just kind of builds and he just lets us stew in the suspense as just every, you know, the pieces slowly fall into place. But if every piece that falls into place, like another thing goes wrong. It's just a beautiful sequence. I love that. I love the way, especially the way Bird will cut and like do these match cuts where, someone in the upstairs room will say a line and then the person playing the other person in the downstairs room will, will he'll just cut to them and they'll respond. It's just it, the way he just kind of sets up the entire scene where you know exactly what's going on despite the two scenes happening in completely different rooms is, was just, I think, really, really incredible. And what's even greater is that uh, that uh, a lot of that was like rewritten on, on, on the fly by uh, Macquarie. Yeah, that scene is one that always sticks out to me. Just kudos to whoever like came up with that idea and put it on paper because... In, even outside of the execution, which I think is fantastic, this is just one of the coolest ideas ever. You know, the idea uh, rigging an elevator to take them up to to a floor they think it is, but it's not, and and to re uh, redo all of the the floor the floor signs outside all the doors and everything, and and recreate a room entirely, all while banking on the idea that they've never met, and those cuts that you you said, you know, where we're assuming all of these parties have had their fair share of meetings like this where we, we kind of know how it goes. So it's not just the movie kind of being cheeky with the way it cuts. They're like, oh, natural, this person's going to say this and, and we're just going to assume that this person said the same thing for the sake of this joke. To me, it, it doesn't even feel like we're having to take that leap of faith for the sake of the, the joke in the moment. It it feels very, very natural the the acting the way they're speaking to each other it's stiff but in a, like in a way that makes sense where everybody's just kind of on edge everybody's got their their sh- their shoulders tightened and, and ears perked and stuff and and so the whole scene from just the the general ideas down to the execution of of you know she needs the diamonds they need the papers they can't do this before we scan the the papers here and Benji's got to come in with his fake like there's so many things moving and if you're not on if you if you haven't really comprehended what has to happen before the actual scene you know when they're they're kind of walking you through what we're about to have to do the scene can be confusing but like if you're intentionally keeping up with with what the movie is and you're fully aware of what this scene has to accomplish the way it's directed from start to end and the way uh it's edited and you know the progression of of the way things happen of this this room has to accomplish this so they can deliver it to this room if you're you're fully aware of what's happening beforehand, that whole scene plays out just perfectly. I, I want to speak up real quickly for the, the the mini fight that happened in the room as well. I, I thought that was a lot of fun to watch. It there was a couple of moments that I had to rewind to catch. There's a moment where uh, I think in the very beginning where Tom Cruise uh, kicks a a table at someone because they're further away from him, they can pull their gun out. And he wants to take care of them first, and you can see some tr- strategic thinking. Uh, at play during the fight scene with him and Jeremy Renner versus the uh, nameless thugs. And I I just enjoy that attention, you know, to detail and to fight mechanics and Mm. like a real sense of like place and physicality. Enjoyed that. I I enjoyed uh, the, um, the fight scene with uh, Paula Patton and Leah Sado, Leah Sado, because uh, they didn't, they didn't pull any punches there. It felt a lot like 
a real fight. It wasn't all like a bunch of uh, like really elaborate and intricate like ninja moves. It felt like a real fight. And I enjoyed that level of uh, physicality like in a fight scene. Yeah, there's a little bit of the choppy, quick cut fist fighting, but you can really see that potential as a director, you know, that he understands the mechanics of how, what makes a, good, a cool fight scene, even if he wasn't, you know, totally there yet. And I think like in like Tomorrowland, there are some out of this world hand-to-hand combat. So like you can really see the potential here for that. Yeah, I thought it did a good job of kind of walking that line between uh, a fight that's, you know, all, all of all of these fights that we watch, they're in movies. They, regardless of how choreographed they looked, obviously these are all, unless they really just let people go at it or, or improv these fights, there's there's choreography to an extent. And I thought this did a really good job of, of balancing, like, let's do this because it looks cool, but let's not indulge ourselves too much, you know, for the sake of looking cool that we we lose the sense of this is, you know, you know, a no holds barred kind of people are really going at it. And so it all, it, it does a good job of feeling real while looking cool. And, and not every movie can say that. Yeah. And I, I think the one reason that why I prefer just going back to why I prefer the, the part, the parking garage sequence to the Burj Khalifa scene is I, I think they're actually one thing that, I, that kind of feels weird to me is that, you know, the premiere stunt of the film happens without any real conflict like he's going there the villains haven't even arrived yet it's all just to so that they can control the elevators like think about how awesome that scene had been if it was actually part of an action scene i think what what they love about the um the parking garage is that there's there are actual stakes like the missile is in the air flying to towards new york so every step of the way you're like you have to hurry you have to hurry and because you know the stakes just keep ramping ramping up uh, this is probably a function of you know having to rewrite the film on the fly and restructure it. That I mean, not all the action scenes got the 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 kind of tension and the the weight and 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 uh, sense of uh, you know this the sense of danger and stakes that they could have had if you know they had been they had, you know they had the plot fully planned out ahead of time. All right, is there anything else y'all really, y'all really want to mention, Kiefer? Um, I'm trying to think. Look through my notes. Uh, I got most everything out of the way. Uh. I really enjoyed Paula Patton in this uh, as well. But I, every time I heard Agent Carter, I sent up a silent prayer for Haley Atwell. Mm. Uh, <laughs> bring back Agent Carter. No, yeah, I thought she was great. We mentioned some other performances. Her, uh, Leah, Leah Zado were both great in it. just want to give them a shout-out as well because I thought they were both interesting. I love the way, actually, at the beginning when they're establishing stakes when uh, uh, Leah shoots uh the agent and then comes up closer to him and kind of gives him that false embrace and then shoots him a couple more times like the chilling like kind of uh menacing beauty of that mm-hmm. was really effective for me i, I enjoyed that yeah i thought leia sado was really good here it was kind of a it felt like this throwback to the old school femme fatales uh without at least in this case for me without ever <laughs> kind of becoming sleazy with the way they portray it but here i thought it was she was done really really well um I'm still kind of torn on Paula Patton. Uh, I think she does a great job of like selling the physicality of the role. She never, to me, she never feels like an actress trying to be an agent. She always does a good job of, of feeling like she's really in the moment and she's performing all of this. Um, I can't tell if it's just like if that's just her or, or it is just a problem with the acting or it's just, just me seeing something that isn't there. I feel like a, a lot of her expressions are, kind of static and. You know, just anytime anything bad has happened, we kind of get the same kind of expression. It 
to me it came off as a bit stiff in the moment but but that very well may just be how she as a person reacts to stuff like this and and it's not even really a, a valid criticism but i never got the emotion i, I won't say never but I, I feel like it didn't come as naturally as it could have huh i i don't i didn't feel that at all um i i really liked her. i i, I I, I think she she had that thing where you know she's basically like really angry and doubting herself the entire the film. I I, I kind of wish they saved Moreau's character till the climax. I think killing her in the middle kind of lessened some of the emotion. Like if if they were able to resolve that emotional arc for her at the end of the film, I think you might might have had a, a better emotional kind of uh, you know overreaching emotional arc. Um, that's it. I I found her. I found her quite good. I, I would like to see her back again. I think she, she's. There was one thing. There was one thing I found out. Yeah, there was one thing I found out that I thought was really cool, though. Originally, um, in the script, whenever she was like seducing the guy at the party, um, the script had her very apprehensive about this and like and kind of squeamish and it was trying to find other ways out of it. And 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 from what I could tell, it was it was them trying to push back like not just have we've got our female character who just naturally falls into the like seductress mode uh, and and trying to be aware of that however paula Patton spoke with with uh with bird and cruz and was like listen I, I i get what you're doing however she kind of understands you know what what the stakes are and what her role has to be to accomplish this mission and so she's like, despite understanding your intentions, I think for the sake of this scene, she's a stronger character if she's like, okay, this is what I got to do. I'm going to go do it. And we're going to get out of here. And and so I, I think that that scene would have kind of been annoying if they were throwing in this extra bit of like her being apprehensive and not really wanting to do this and having to like be coached into doing it through the, the headphones. But her just kind of picking up on you know, this This is who this guy is, this is how I'm going to work him to accomplish the mission. I thought it made the scene better as is than it would have been. Yeah, that scene was actually shot. It's in the deleted scenes. Um, but I like that, they, you know, they still have that. You know, she's still kind of awkward and, and she, you know, would probably rather be anywhere else. But, you know, she uh, obviously, you know, being the agent trying to save the world, she's still game for it. Yeah, she, she radiates, you know, strength throughout most of the movie. And it, and it is a little disconcerting, I think, sometimes still to see, you know, like that, like, like just like her entire characters, like that overall, like aggression and, and vengeance, like in our big budget action movie sometimes, but I think she pulled it off really well. And like, and yeah, I'd like to see more of her and if they could ever bring her back, I'd be in favor of that. Yeah. Uh, I guess one final thing before we close, I am so glad they didn't kill Julia. That would have after, you know, after, all with with the entirety of Mission Impossible Three is you know Ethan racing against time, trying to save his wife, and you know giving us some of the greatest dramatic acting he's done, all to save his wife, and they have a happy ending, and then come to the next film, oh she died, like how how much of a bummer would that have been? And not only would it have been a bummer, but killing killing primary characters that kind of revolved around the emotional arc, or really was the emotional arc of one film, just killing them off screen, going to the next one. Uh, Ridley Scott's good at that, actually, and I really dislike <laughs> it. But he, I'm, yeah, I'm glad that McQuarrie was like, wait, like, that's. I mean, first of all, this is a Brad Bird film. People would be caught off guard if it was like, oh yeah, she died, we moved on. Uh, I, I like that he kind of 
saw the potential for her in the future, or at least to, you know, if if the series wasn't interested in continuing this, like, how do I balance a personal life with, with my working life? I'm glad that someone like him saw that like, we can do that without just, like, flippantly killing her off between movies. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, unfortunately, you know, coming into a film almost shot, they couldn't they couldn't actually explain that or have her come back to the fi- finale. I'm still kind of annoyed that all the work of three was so flippantly thrown away, despite, you know, him being able to come in and hastily patch together. But I, one thing I think is rather genius that he did was combining Brant's emotional arc with Ethan's. You know, in in the originally, you know, Brant wasn't even connected at all to Ethan or Julia. It was, it was a completely separate thing. By, by combining that, you know, his, you know, his, his, you know, having withdrawn from field work into Ethan's wife dying. Uh, I feel it's, it's you know, a genius bit of, uh, you know, cleaning up a messier script and, you know, uh, you know, just, just, just making the drama more focused. To, to, to be honest with you, that might be one of my little quibbles with the film. I, I would have actually preferred for Brand to be uh, a little bit, you know, removed from Ethan's story and kind of have his own reasons for being, you know, uh, on the outside uh, as an eight, as a, analyst and not a field agent but yeah i understand why and i think it probably contributed to this movie being better but just as as a fan i think i would have appreciated like a little bit more removal from like the idea of ethan hunt as the mainstay of like every relationship there but i think i got enough of that isn't he isn't doesn't the world revolve around tom cruise (laughs) well yeah (laughs) i I think (laughs) one of the reasons why i liked it was to me, it almost feels like we we have kind of gotten that in previous installments, like like the the Irish guy from three, or pretty much like the Australian guy. You know, anyone other than than Benji and Luther is kind of this come in. This is who I am. This is my past. Come out, like installment after installment. So whenever we're able to to pull in a, a new character and and tie them to Ethan, one, it gives me hope that we're going to be able to see him again, and two, it's just like. If if that weren't him, then it would be like, this is, you know, obligatory side character who just kind of comes out of nowhere for this movie number four. And so to, to tie him emotionally into the plot to me was like, okay, he's not just, you know, there simply to round out um, a dynamic. All right. Uh, so anything else you guys want to mention before we move into talking about the soundtrack or I talk about the soundtrack? Yeah, I think I'm good. Kiefer, do you have any uh, anything any uh, observations about the, uh, the uh, score? Um, I, I do not. Okay. <laughs> I'll leave that to the experts. Uh, and as usual, uh, you didn't listen to it, James, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so one thing I noticed is that th- this Giacchino brings almost an entirely different style and sound to this. Uh, you know, he he really molds his style to the director, and you know, th- th- there are there are some similar. Uh, motifs like this the kind of suspense motif that he used a lot in um in mission impossible 3 shows up once or twice here but overall this score feels a lot more kind of flowing and melodic uh as i feel like the mi3 score was a bit sharper and maybe more dangerous and it just this here it feels just more it just feels nicer um and that, that you know kind of fits the tone of the movie very well um, I, I love both, but I, I, I think I, the one, the one edge I'll give to this film over Mission Impossible Three is that, uh, I think that this score is a lot nicer to listen, a lot more pleasing to listen to outside of the film. Whereas you know both work perfectly well within the film. This one just feels 
a bit a bit richer and less uh it just it just flows better um so to, to talk about a few of the the, uh, the tracks that i <clears throat> just so to talk about a few of the tracks that are really stood out to me uh, uh light ones like the fuse this is like a, a much more smooth and jazzy version of the uh of the Mission Impossible theme, you know, he he rewrote it in Mission Impossible Three, and he rewrote it here. It's a little smaller and less bombastic. Uh, and there's a lot of the Incredibles in it. Uh, and there's a knife to a gunfight. I think it, it, you know it does a really great job just building the uh, building the excitement. There's a really nice flow and rhythm to it. Um, like I think I believe the main instruments are like a, a tuba and violin, which gives it a very unique uh, feeling. Um, and these the two tracks, uh, Kremlin with anticipation and from Russia with shove. And speaking of which, I I adore the pun uh, track titles that Michael Giacchino has been working into his his uh his scores for the last few years. They're just really goofy dad jokes, but I love them. Um, but about these, just three words: uh, ma- Russian male choir. Uh, they're awesome. Like whenever they show up in a movie, I always love it. And what's really cool is. That he you know, he has the big bombastic choir as we're introduced to the Kremlin, but throughout the throughout the music in there, he takes that he takes that chorus and basically sets it uh, uh you know sets it and ter- turns it into orchestral music. So you have the exact same rhythm rhythm and cadence of that classic you know Russian chorus, but it, it's played with instruments instead of vocals. And I thought that was really fun. There's a man, a plan, a code, and Dubai. This gives us like this really grand, sweeping Arabian Nights kind of stuff, but but with Western orchestration, and similar. And same thing with uh with uh Mood India. This one has the, the traditional Indian music with kind of an electric twang, but also mixed in with you know Western instruments. And the final piece that I want to highlight is uh put the miss in mission. And this is like a very nice, quiet, quiet piece of kind of slightly melancholy hope and contentment it plays over uh the scene where ethan and uh julia are kind of watching each other and it's got a really lovely piano underneath Uh, it might be my favorite favorite track out of the score but it's just a very lovely just personal and uh emotional piece of music that i find a really great capper to the film and he reprises that at, at the very end, if I'm not mistaken, that's the same theme that we hear at the end of Mission Impossible 3, right? The the theme with him and Julia. I should know this because I listened to it and you didn't, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure, because I, I didn't go back and listen to it, but in the moment uh, at this part in the movie, uh, as he's seeing her come off the ferry and you, you hear that, I'm pretty positive we we first heard that in 3. That would make sense, but I do not remember, sadly. Um, so then before we close out, uh, I want to ask you guys to, uh, give your star rating for this film out of five stars and also how you rank the series. Let's go, uh, to you, Kiefer, uh, where does this rank in the entire series for you? Uh, uh, just give us your ranking for the whole series, but also what is your star rating out of five for it? I'll take the second question first. Uh, I think, uh, ghost protocol is probably going to be like a 4.8 out of five for my star ranking. Okay. And my ranking of the entire series is going to be one Ghost Protocol, uh, two Fallout, three Rogue Nation, four MI1, mm. five MI3, six MI2. Okay. And what about you, James? Uh, so I give this one a, a solid four out of five. Uh, I'm kind of with you on not really – I don't feel particularly invested in this story, just the whole Russian nuclear – like all of that stuff doesn't draw me in as much but the action is just so expertly shot and uh 
and the sense of humor that Bird brings to all of it just really works for me. So it's a solid four out of five. Um, for where we're at with the the first four we've done, I I do my favorite so far is uh, I go number one is three, uh, number two would be MI one, number three would be Ghost Protocol, and then number four uh, at a distant pace is uh, MI two. Okay, for me, I'm, I'm actually also at four stars, although it's a bit tenuous for me. Like. If I watch it really closely and I'm thinking about the plot and drama, it drops down to a 3.5. But if, I, if I'm kind of watching from a distance, just enjoying the action and kind of tuning out during the plot, it goes back up to a 4. So I'm going to stick with a 4. Um, my ranking is at Mission Impossible 3, Ghost Protocol, Mission Impossible 1, and then Mission Impossible 2 at the bottom. Not nearly as far behind as for you, James. Uh, so for the uh, the initial on the initial release, it grossed $209 million domestically and, four, and 485 in the... Uh, sorry. And four hundred eighty-five million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of six hundred forty-nine million on its one hundred forty-five million dollar budget, which was actually a slight budget drop from MI three. It is currently the third highest-grossing Mission Impossible film domestically after Fallout and Mission Impossible two, and the second highest-grossing worldwide after Fallout. And it's also the, the seventh highest-grossing film of two thousand eleven, and it's the top three of that year would have been uh, Deathly Hallows Part two, Transformers: Dark of the Moon, and Brilliant uh, and. Tw- and the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1. So as far as the critical uh, and audience reception, um, critics, they love this movie. Like, they really, really, really love this movie. Um, like, it's it's really rare you see people who are, like, you see them kind of come together and just be so universally effusive over a blockbuster. Uh, currently holds a uh, 93% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 73 on Metacritic, but you know, like just seven years later and people are still talking about this movie. Something about this, like, really clicked with critics in a way that action films just rarely do. Kind of, uh, my, my, which is kind of behind some of my angst toward this film is where I, I think it takes a lot of credit that other Mission Impossible films deserve, but uh, whatever. <laughs> in time, you will see the light, Gabe. In time, I, I'm, I'm here to speak for the majority. You know, as a, I'm a big, you know, action popcorn flick guy, and I'm really glad that you know we're starting to get our due in the, the pop culture. It's taken a while, but I think we're finally here, finally getting the attention we deserve, and I hope to see. Not just this franchise, but other you know popcorn franchises really start to edge up in the critical rankings. Yeah. So as far as how this film is remembered, um, you could pretty much just copy and paste everything you said about the initial reception. Um, it's still considered, you know, one of if not the best of the series. You know, I, I think with Rogue Nation and especially Fallout, there's there's a lot more um, conversations being had about what the best actually is, and or at least you know the perception of, of what the best is. Um, and you know, if three kept the series alive, this is kind of what's seen. This is the movie that really brought it back up to you know successful franchise status, and and it's kind of you know you see a lot of it in three, but this is this really helps set a template that they've used going forward with the whole. You know, the, the advertisements for Ghost Protocol, um, Rogue Nation, and Fallout all almost revolved around something that they did with Tom Cruise, whether it, it's him running down the side of a size, uh, skyscraper holding on to the outside of a plane or or all of the crazy nonsense he did in Fallout. It's This has been... And it's funny because you know, he, he's always been all about his own stunts in the first three, but, but a lot of times they just kind of happen with the movie as things go on but these this one started the trend of kind of highlighting 
the big set piece moments where Tom Cruise almost killed himself. And uh, yeah, so th- this movie has aged very well with with critics and uh, and audiences alike. Yeah, th- th- this really is is as far as I could talk. I, I wasn't terribly involved in film culture online previously, but this seems to be where the narrative of you know, Tom Cruise is the crazy stuntman really took off. And you know, going forward with all of his films now, the the kind of like especially especially the Mission Impossible films, they also do with the Mummy, where they'll release like a featurette, at, you know, before the film is even released, talking about the crazy stunt they did, whether it's a Halo jump or Tom Cruise learning how to fly a helicopter, like. It's it's kind of become part of pop culture thanks to this film. Just Tom Cruise is crazy. And maybe the biggest legacy is just how it kind of revived Tom Cruise himself. You know, like yeah. he, he went through a long stint of just, I mean, you could probably encapsulate his, just the kind of movies he was making and the, the general thought towards him around, you know, what happened with Night and Day where it's, it's just another Tom Cruise action flick, probably going to be dumb. Let's move on. Tom Cruise is fading and, it's so weird thinking that that was only about, you know, like 10 years ago um, because now, you know, this movie was so celebrated and so much of that celebration was around Tom Cruise and what he was able to do. And, you know, after that, he had Jack Reacher, which was just another really great movie. And, and Mission Impossible only keeps getting, you know, more and more amazing in terms of uh, the stuff that Tom Cruise himself is doing. And we're kind of living in a, a renaissance for him uh, as an actor. And it's, you know, praise for Cruz feels more present than ever so uh if anything this this film can probably be thanked for the the more appreciation we see for him as an actor yeah it was alarmingly close the time the time that you know people were just like openly oh tom cruise is useless whatever time like and you still see so like now when i see i see kind of the tom cruise the lingering effects of the, the anti-tom cruise narrative online I'm like wait i thought we already decided he was cool again but yeah, this film really kind of set him back up as the leading action star. All right, uh, so that was Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you guys to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're there at, at Franchise Pod. And we're also on Instagram as at Franchise Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And uh, Kiefer, thanks for coming on. Uh, where can people follow you? I can follow me on Instagram at Kiefer.win. I'm on Twitter at George Gervin, Lord Iron Man. Sorry, I got it wrong earlier. And I'm on Facebook as Kiefer Win and Snapchat as uh, the King Keef. And uh, what about you, James? Uh, you can follow me mainly uh, at Letterboxd. Uh, there's JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. I try to, I've tried to be more intentional with with writing reviews lately uh, it'll probably take another dip now that the semester's in full swing but um i'll still try to keep up as best i can uh and then you and i are both admins over at star wars fans who actually like star wars uh on facebook so we're about to start talking a lot more about stuff over there as as the year continues and i'm also on letterbox i'm there as gabriel green you can follow me on twitter as Gabe A. Green, and on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. So next week, we'll be discussing the fifth film in the series, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which I might just dethrone uh, Mission Impossible 3 as my favorite. So yeah, I really can't wait to talk about that and just listen to another uh, one of those three-hour interviews with uh, Macquarie on Empire Podcast. Speaking of which, yeah, if you, if you haven't heard the, uh, the, the interviews with Chris Macquarie on the Empire Film Podcast, do yourself a favor. They're like 
two, three hours long, and he goes in detail through the entire process of making those movies and like one of the greatest looks uh, behind the scenes of blockbuster filmmaking. Completely side note, but do that. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs>